Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode from our series exploring 100 ideas in genetics, we're digging around in the genetic vegetable patch, from flavorful tomatoes and chunky onion genomes to Mendel's peas. Every other episode of Genetics Unzipped, we're celebrating the Genetic Society's centenary year by exploring some of the top 100 ideas in genetics. So sit back and enjoy these three tales from the world of genes, genomes and DNA. The human genome is an incredible thing. Six billion letters of DNA, that's more than two metres of DNA in every cell, containing all the genes that enable a single cell to grow into a fully formed, fully functioning person. So when the first draft sequence of the human genome was published in 2001, researchers around the world were eager to discover exactly how many genes must be packed into our glorious genome. The answer was a big surprise. Many people thought that it must take at least 100,000 genes to make a human, with a sweepstake on offer to the person who made the closest guess to the final number. Yet the human genome turns out to only contain about 20,000 or so genes. That's roughly the same number of genes as a fruit fly or a nematode worm. This seems remarkably low to make an organism with as much dazzling complexity as a human being. Even more perplexingly, the genes that we do have make up less than 2% of all our DNA. So what's the rest? To find out, we need to go back in time to 1972. That's when geneticist Susumu Ono published a paper entitled So Much Junk DNA in Our Genome in an obscure scientific journal, the Brookhaven Symposia in Biology, in which he mused upon a mathematical problem. By this point, scientists had already measured how much DNA was present in bacteria and figured out that these little bugs must contain a few thousand genes. They also knew that a single human cell contained at least 750 times as much DNA. Ono did a quick back-of-the-envelope calculation. If the number of genes in any genome was directly proportional to the amount of DNA, then humans should have... 3 million genes, more or less. But, as he pointed out in his paper, lowly lungfish and salamanders can have 36 times more DNA in their cells than is present in ours, suggesting that they should have... 100 million genes! He didn't believe it. What would a slimy salamander need with all those genes? Therefore, Ono concluded, the vast majority of the human genome must be junk. And correspondingly, varying proportions of other organisms' genomes must be junk too. And once the Human Genome Project revealed that the vast majority of our genome doesn't seem to contain actual genes, it looked like he was right. The function of this remaining 98% of the human genome, sometimes called junk DNA, but more accurately referred to as non-coding DNA, is a hotly debated topic in the world of genetics, fought out within the dignified pages of journals and the more febrile atmosphere of scientific conferences. 
an absolutely massive study published in 2012, known as ENCODE, suggested that around 80% of the human genome was functional. That is, it did something important for the proper functioning of our cells and bodies. Just under 10% is thought to be control switches, responsible for turning genes on and off at the right time and in the right place. Well, the rest does all manner of things, from producing little pieces of RNA that control gene activity to organising the three-dimensional structure of the DNA inside a cell. Others were less convinced. For example, evolutionary geneticists suggested that less than 10% of the human genome is functional, based on how much has been strongly preserved through evolutionary time and must therefore be very important. It's against this backdrop that we bring in the onion test, devised by T. Ryan Gregory and posted on his blog in April 2007. It was later formalised as a scientific paper that he published in 2014, together with Alexander Palazzo. Put simply, the onion test goes like this. The onion in your vegetable drawer has five times more DNA than a human. So, if you're a researcher who thinks that non-coding DNA has a particular function in the genome, can you explain why an onion needs about five times more of it than a human to do the same thing? Unpeeling this idea a little bit further, Gregory points out that some species of onions have around double the amount of DNA as your regular onion, while others have less than half. Yet they are pretty much the same and have more or less the same number of genes. So why would they need double or half the amount of non-coding DNA? This argument works for all kinds of species, from Ono's lowly salamanders with their giant genomes, containing roughly the same set of genes as other vertebrates, including humans, to the biggest genome discovered to date, which belongs to the Japanese canopy flower, Paris japonica, which has around 150 times more DNA in its genome than a human. Then there's the poisonous fugu pufferfish, often eaten, very carefully, as a delicacy in Japan. They have remarkably compact genomes, roughly an eighth of the size of our own, yet containing almost exactly the same repertoire of genes and very little junk. Perhaps our obsession with finding function for all the junk in our genome comes from a desire to think that humans are something special in the biological world, certainly more special than an onion. But in the words of the grumpy geneticist Dan Grauer, who I interviewed for my book, Herding Hemingway's Cats, in which I dig into the junk in our genetic trunk. Either you have to assume that humans are the pinnacle of creation, that everything is functional and those organisms with more DNA than us have junk DNA, but we don't. Or you have to assume that humans are a regular organism that has junk DNA just like everything else. This is Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip and online at geneticsunzipped.com. Please do take a minute to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from, and it would be great if you could rate and review the show and tell all your friends. For many people, the forefather of genetics is Gregor Mendel, an Augustinian friar at St Thomas's Abbey in Moravia, now Bruno in the Czech Republic. 
Scientifically minded since childhood, Mendel was fascinated by the way in which traits could be inherited down the generations. Originally asking his bosses at the Abbey if he could carry out breeding experiments with mice to find out how it all worked. Feeling that this was maybe an inappropriate occupation for a man of the cloth, Mendel's superiors steered him towards the Abbey Gardens, in which he began to grow thousands of pea plants over eight years, pollinating individual plants with a paintbrush to see how various characteristics, including height, petal colour and the hue and wrinkliness of the seeds, was inherited, carefully counting more than 40,000 flowers and 300,000 peas. Using nothing more than statistics and a lot of hard thought, he figured out the basics of genetics, a set of rules now known as the laws of Mendelian inheritance, at a time before anything was known about genes or DNA. First, Mendel realised that there must be two copies of each component that imparts a particular characteristic, one from mummy plant and the other from dad, and that only one version of each trait maker ends up coming from each parent. We now know that these trait makers are genes, and we do indeed inherit one set from each parent. Second, he discovered recessive and dominant characteristics, for example just one purple petal gene being enough to give a flower purple petals. Third comes the law of independent assortment. Genes are independently and randomly sorted into the eggs and sperm, or pollen and pistils, of the parents, and don't get blended together. Presented at a meeting of his local scientific society in February 1865 and published in a little-known German journal, Mendel's experiments on plant hybridisation contained the seeds of the future field of genetics. Yet despite their groundbreaking insights into the secrets of nature, Mendel's results languished in obscurity for decades until being rediscovered and translated into English by British biologist William Bateson, the founder of the Genetic Society, in 1901. While Bateson gets the glory for the popularisation of Mendel's ideas in the early 20th century, others also deserve a nod, notably Dutchman Hugo de Vries, German Karl Korens and the Austrian Eric Schermack. But while most of the budding plant genetics community picked up Mendel's ideas and ran with them, there were a few dissenting voices. One was Raphael Weldon, who took a closer look at Mendel's maths and wasn't entirely convinced, noting in a letter to a colleague that I can't help wondering if the results are too good. Even more fundamentally, Weldon realised that Mendel's insistence that characteristics segregated neatly into a few discrete categories simply wasn't true. And when you look at the patterns of inherited characteristics across the wider world, it's clear that people are not peas. And even peas are not peas. Not, at least, in the way that Mendel saw them. To make his point, in 1902, Weldon published a paper entitled Mendel's Laws of Alternative Inheritance in Peas, which is about the closest thing to a hip-hop diss track in early 20th century genetics as you're ever going to get. Weldon brought the smackdown with a photograph of a neatly arranged crop of peas, which should all be green or yellow, according to Mendel's rules. Instead, Weldon showed a spectrum of colours from grassy green through to bright yellow. Fifty shades of peas, indeed. 
Weldon and others after him showed that genetic inheritance is all about variation and complexity. Our traits, characteristics and health are created through interactions between thousands of genes, millions of subtle genetic variations, the influence of the world around us and the random hand of chance. Mendel's rigid laws only apply to a relatively small number of traits and diseases, and even now there seems to be a lot of blurriness around the edges. Now that researchers can scan through the DNA of many thousands of healthy people, they're starting to discover genetic superheroes. People carrying gene faults that should make them sick, but they're perfectly healthy. It's a fascinating subject I covered in a talk at New Scientist Live in 2018, if you'd like to find out more. And as for Mendel himself, after his work on pea plants failed to hit the scientific heights, he turned his attention to breeding killer bees, apparently, before taking over as abbot and embarking on a fight with the local government about taxes. Today, his garden at St Thomas's Abbey has been turned into a museum, celebrating his life and work, and it is well worth a nerdy day trip, should you wish to dig deeper into the story of Mendel and his peas. It's February the 5th, 1996, and an unusual product has appeared on the shelves of UK supermarkets for the very first time. Sainsbury's and Safeway stores are stocking a new type of tomato puree made from genetically modified tomatoes, the first time any GM plant has been sold in our shops. Two years earlier, the US FDA had approved Flavor Saver, the world's first commercially available genetically modified crop, made by the company Calgene, and following extensive safety testing. The tomatoes had been modified to carry a piece of DNA designed to turn down the activity of a gene called polygalacturinase, or PG, which breaks down the cell walls inside the fruits, making them ripen and then rot. Regular, commercially grown tomatoes are harvested while green and then ripened in warehouses by blasting them with ethylene gas. That's the natural ripening agent produced by fruits. But this means they are often tasteless and watery. Not what you want for a rich puree. Turning down the PG gene would help keep the tomatoes in a fresh state for longer so they could be ripened on the vine, making for a tastier tom. In the UK, GM tomato products were made from fruits modified in the same way as the original Flavor Saver, produced in California under licence by the agrochemical company Zeneca. But although the GM puree was cheaper than its unmodified counterpart, and it sold reasonably well, there was a problem. The new breed of GM foods hit the shelves in the face of strong pushback from environmental groups such as Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace, who were deeply concerned about the environmental, economic, social and health implications of this new technology. The media ran news stories about frankenfoods, many of which still echo in social media coverage of GM foods today. Concerns increased even further in 1998, when researcher Dr Arpad Pushtai announced unpublished results suggesting that he had found out that GM potatoes could induce health problems in rats. 
Even then Prime Minister Tony Blair's statement that he had eaten GM foods didn't help when he did a U-turn a year later, saying, There's no doubt that there is a potential for harm, both in terms of human safety and in the diversity of our environment, from GM foods and crops. Thanks, Tony. Flavour Saver products lasted just three years on the market before they were withdrawn, with Calgene's new owner Monsanto explaining that poor harvests and high shipping costs made it unprofitable. Although some people have suggested that the company's expertise in genetics, but inexperience in the business of growing and shipping tomatoes, might have also played a part in the product's failure. Rather than calming down, concerns about GM crops have continued to rise, particularly in the US, fueled by online activism and social media. As well as worrying about the health and environmental impacts, some people are concerned about a reduction in biodiversity due to GM crops, and that large amounts of power and money in the agricultural world could be concentrated in the hands of relatively few large corporations. These are arguments that can't be ignored, and they have to be addressed if GM crops are to have a future. But there are also many people who feel that carefully regulated genetic technology is an important tool to help feed the world. Plant geneticists in academic labs and commercial companies continue to investigate ways to make food crops healthier, tastier, hardier or more environmentally friendly whether that's through conventional breeding or genetic modification, including precise gene editing techniques like CRISPR. For example, researchers are studying the chemicals produced by tomatoes that make them taste particularly delicious, in the hope of identifying genes that could be conventionally bred or artificially induced into our insipid salads. Another project is testing out whether a gene from peppers, a close genetic cousin of tomatoes, could make the plants more resistant to bacterial wilt, which would mean that they need less polluting copper-based pesticides to grow. And at the John Innes Centre in Norwich, Professor Cathy Martin is using GM technology to develop beautiful purple tomatoes that have high levels of health-giving polyphenols. So, although Flavor Saver may no longer be flavour of the month, I do feel that genetic science still has a part to play in helping to feed a growing global population living in the face of climate change. information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits, and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip, and you can email us podcast at geneticsunzipped.com with any questions and feedback. Please do take a minute to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from, and it would be great if you could rate and review. And more importantly, please spread the word about this podcast so that more people can discover the world of genes, genomes and DNA. Genetics Unzipped is presented by me, Dr Kat Arney, and produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, the logo was designed by James Mayle, and production was by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.